You're listening to episode 399 of the UAV Digest. I'm Max Flight. And I'm David Vanderhoof. Hello, Max. David, David, we've we've missed a few weeks. I think, uh, was it two weeks we've missed here? I think we missed two weeks, and we, we can blame it completely on me. Yeah. Um, I, I actually had my grand opening of the Helicopter and the Presidency exhibit at the American Helicopter Museum, and I was fortunate enough to have my guest host show up for the opening, um, which was lovely because I think Max and I were figuring out that while we've seen each other almost every week, uh, we haven't really been in person with each other for over close to a year, year and a half. So it was it was really lovely to get together. Um, but you th- we did miss, and we're, we're, we're going to be doing this on a sort of ad hoc basis as my co-host is going to go flying across the country trying to um, find the, the highest gas prices in yeah. the United States. Um, oh, so we will, we will be not doing it as regularly as we should, but we will be doing it regularly. So just keep an eye on your feed and we will we'll let you know when we will be recording and it'll be based on um, the availability of my co-host and whether he's anywhere near um, internet access. Yeah, that's right. This is another good reason for you all to subscribe. Make sure you're subscribed to the UAV Digest so that you don't miss any episodes and you know when they come out. Uh, hey, we do have a little trick, though. Well, it's not really a trick, but if you would like to get an email every time an episode comes out, then you can just visit subscribebyemail.com and then put in the UAV Digest, and you'll get an email with a player Whenever an episode comes out, subscribe by email.com. And there's, uh, it, it's completely anonymous. There's no, uh, we don't harvest any uh, emails or anything like that. In fact, it's provided by a third party, but uh, they are trustworthy. So it's just another way you can, you know, stay current with, with the podcast. So, David, what are we looking at this episode? We've got a tethered drone for first responder situational awareness river rescue missions, a little Avengers um, and Molinar with Thor's hammer, UASs over the Antarctic, a first drone on Mars is Venus next. Drones are off from Mars. Quadcopters are from Venus. I don't know. Is is that a sequel book? Drone deliveries to offshore wind farms and hobby drones in the war with Ukraine. Uh, of course, needless to say, we're, if we have any listeners in Ukraine, we're wishing them the best. Of course, we support Ukraine, and what's happening is just appalling and uh, and hard to watch. But more of that afterwards. So I guess we should get started. What do you think, Max? David, let's get started. Our first story comes from uh, the Robsonian.com. NC DOT launches national first with tethered drones on IMAP trucks. So three years ago in episode 285, we covered Photokite, a tethered drone in their partnership with Pierce Manufacturing. Well, now the North Carolina Department of Transportation is launching a pilot with Photokite. They are, and this is on select vehicles. These are They call them IMAP vehicles, Incident Management Assistance Patrol, and uh, this is in conjunction, of course, with the uh, NCDOT, the Division of Aviation's Unmanned Aircraft System Program. 
So it's a couple of uh, North Carolina DOT organizations collaborating on this. And they're going to try uh, using this uh, to assist in accidents, incidents, things like that, where situational awareness could be a big help. Yeah, um, traffic management. And and keep in mind that, remember, North Carolina was one of the first ones to come out with a department of UAS as part of their Department of Transportation. They've been ahead of the curve on this. Um, but what, So what does a photokite do? Well, tether drones can fly up to 50, 150 feet and provide video feeds. Two tether drone systems will be tested under the pilot program. You know, the, all these pilot programs for un, uh, uncrewed aerial vehicles, I, I never understood that. But I can imagine that basically uh, these photokites will be kind of eyes in the sky and where you would need a more expensive helicopter. And uh, they're easily deployable because they're tethered. Um, you don't have issues with uh, flight duration. You can send them up and they can be your eye in the sky and uh, understand what's going on in this incident um, much more quickly than I think than uh, you know folks on the ground could could accomplish. So it seems like a, a, I don't know, a really cost effective way to provide a lot of value to uh, law enforcement and first responders. So I think this is I think this is really encouraging. In a way, the tether drone is a little bit more safe in this kind of environment because you, you're it's never going to go any farther than the tether. You're taking out one variable with one more variable out where something might go wrong. So um, hopefully we'll get some results to see how this is working. So our next story comes from Iris Automation, and it received a FAA waiver to test BV Lost drones in a Nevada river rescue missions. This was from Drone DJ. So Iris Automation waiver allows them to fly BV Loss in a rural, unpopulated area south of Reno, Nevada, using the company's Cassia X detect and avoid system. Iris, of course, has been um, working with the city of, of Reno for quite some time. Uh, in fact, since 2019, uh, both in the here we go, David. The FAA's uh, integration pilot program, another pilot program, and uh, now in this uh, Beyond program. So, David, they're working with the city of Reno and the Reno Fire Department. Yeah, and um, the Reno Fire Department conducts about 40 rescues per year in the Truckee River. A mission can la last an hour with 12 to 20 first responders, and these rescues are time critical. Water rescues are never easy, no matter, right? And having a drone be able to um, locate whoever they need to rescue and possibly deliver things like life preservers or a rope line would definitely speed up the process and um, facilitate maybe less people in these kind of rescues, keeping the resp first responders to a um, more reasonable min minimum in case something else happens. For sure. And, you know, linking this up to the previous story, David, I can envision a situation where you could pair up a tethered drone for the uh, situational awareness, the, the broad view, and uh, untethered drones to uh, carry out other, other missions, like you say, bring a life preserver or uh, supplies or, you know, anything else where you want to use it as a, as a delivery vehicle. Seems like maybe, you know, pairing up those two approaches could... Uh, sort of be the ultimate thing. 
Yeah, I, I, I agree with you, Max. Um, you know, and and again, the tether does have the disadvantage of you have to be on site to operate it. Whereas this, we're talking when the Cassia X, we're talking about beyond visual line of sight. Um, so I'm wondering if that will be operated out of either remotely in case they have to get out of line of sight or they're going to be operating from like a central station um, f- for the flight, you know, where you launch the drone in, but it's flown remotely from the central station. So, yeah. And it could go out down to the river and take a look and see what the situation is probably while first responders are on the way, but that might provide more information about the number or type of first responders that, might be yeah. appropriate, or any special equipment that might likely be required. Be yeah, for that particular uh, operation, for that for that rescue. If you can have that information before the first responders arrive, uh, or at least the initial ones, the initial first responders arrive, that can be quite quite valuable. Well, our next story is from the Avengers. Well, okay, it's so, not from the Avengers, but um, this was from DefenseNews.com. Killing drones with Thor's hammer. Air Force eyes counter UAS system Molinar weapon. So the Air Force Research Laboratory, or the AFRL, has awarded a $28 million counter UAS contract to Lidros to build a prototype system that disables small UASs with high-power microwaves. Yeah, so they've named this after Thor's hammer because it, it builds on previous work. There was a Thor program. That's the Tactical High Power Operational Responder, the Thor program. And it's uh, or it was a, a counter swarm electromagnetic weapon. And uh, the, the idea is that uh, you know you can use non-kinetic methods to take out a drone by applying a burst of of radiation. So this um Lido's uh, prototype system builds on that, and the idea is that this would disable small UAS with high-power microwaves. So the project will begin um, at Lido's Albuquerque facilities, and the AFRL wants to have a prototype delivered by 2023. Again, the Air Force now um, is definitely getting into quick prototyping, and a lot of these UAS programs are... You know, get it get it done in multiple prototypes, but quick prototyping. Um, the Defense Department came concerned. It created the Joint Counter Small Aircraft Office, um, and that's led by the Ar- Department of the Army in February 2020. So this is becoming more and more of a objective for the U.S. military. And we, interestingly enough, we will talk about this a little bit later about using small UASs in conflict where it's happening in real time in Ukraine. But yeah, Molinar, if you, you know, I, I thought it was very, you know, Thor was, of course, we have to have our initials mean something, even if they don't necessarily mean arrange them, but Molinar is kind of cool. So you, so if you've got to watch the Avengers, you got to watch Thor and Molinar. I think what this is, is sort of a, Shrink down in the size of the uh, of the technology that was developed through the Thor program because that's pretty big. That thing fits in a twenty foot transport container. The Thor does so obviously that's too big to mount on <laughs> on a drone. So I don't know what form factor this uh, Molnar system is to take. Probably it's 
going to be something more compact and more easily transportable, I guess, but we'll find out. Oh, and Lidos is sponsoring Bubba Wallace in NASCAR, one of our favorite racers in, in this household. I know. When, when I saw that, it was kind of like, wait a minute, this, uh, this uh, sounds familiar. It's L-E-I-D-O-S. And uh, yeah, they're a NASCAR sponsor. Interesting. Well, it, it, you know, it just shows you how pervasive UASs have become. Even the races now have UAS coverage. So yeah, all of this gets touched sooner or later by drones. So in Earth news, NASA is helping to fly drones in the Arctic. Here's what it means for sea ice and sea level change. This was from uh, LakeCon News. NASA is leading a team to show that fixed-wing drones could fly over the Arctic Ocean for several days. The attributable UAS is from Vanilla Unmanned. kind of like that name, Max. Vanilla Unmanned? Yes. There's probably a story to that. I'm not sure what it is, though, but we should find out. Yeah, the Arctic environment, of course, is uh, uh, very uh, severe. Hostile. Hostile. It's very cold. Um, things that use batteries don't really like that. So uh, it's been sort of difficult to uh, provide UAS in that kind of an environment. So uh, this is something that's designed to perform multi-day surveillance and inspection operations, long flight duration. And uh, these can be used either to, to hover over a target for an extended period of time or to travel potentially for thousands of miles, let's say, in a search pattern. But its application in the Arctic is significant because uh, they can collect with this drone much more accurate data than if they were to use data from uh, or observations from satellites, say, and that kind of thing. NASA has been flying aircraft over the polar ice caps for precisely this thing, manned aircraft. But this is one more alternative, you know, when you're flying from Greenland up to the North Pole and to check sheet ice, it's difficult on the airplanes. It's difficult on the crews. And, of course, there's you've got limited visibility, et cetera, and a limited time that you can do this. So this sounds like this is a way to do a more year-round kind of inspection. And Vanilla has uh, the company... <laughs> I guess the company and the drone are the same name, Vanilla. But they have three, well, as they say in their webpage, they have three flavors of the uh, of the Vanilla. Um, but they're all based on a 36-foot uh, wingspan. So they're pretty decent sized. There's the ultra-long endurance. Uh, the second one is the multi-mission heavy lift. And the third is uh, a VTOL, which basically takes, uh, takes that design and uh, adds four rotors for, for vertical takeoff and land. So we'll have, a, um, of course, a link in the show notes to the, to the Vanilla website, as well as to the article about this, if you're interested in exploring this in more detail. Well, I don't know if we can go any more of a harsher climate on the opposite end of the spectrum than the polar ice cap than, than Venus. Mm. And this is also a NASA story. NASA consider, considers bird-like drones to explore Venus's atmosphere. This is from digitaltrends.com. NASA wants to study the use of drones that fly through the Venusian atmosphere and study the planet. Um, now, contrary to Mars, which had little to no atmosphere, 
Venus is just the opposite, and it has a super dense atmosphere. So NASA's come up with a kind of a unique solution for that. This is called the BREEZE, another acronym here. That stands for Bio-Inspired Ray for Extreme Environments and Zonal Exploration. Oh, boy. So th this is an interesting, uh, an interesting drone. It would be uh, inflatable. It's designed to be inflatable. And, of course, as, as, as you were saying, David, it has to operate successfully in these uh, environments with extreme pressure, very high temperatures. The landers, that the few landers that uh, we have sent to, uh, to Venus uh, and landed to the surface, they tend to not... <laughs> Last very long. No, like maybe a couple hours. If you know what a sub happens when it crash dives and, and, and gets compressed, well, that's what happens to, like, probes on Venus. You know, the, I think the Russian ones lasted only, like, maybe an hour, hour and a half after it hit the... This is definitely a different environment than what we were talking about flying good old Ginny on Mars, which, congratulations, was up to 21 flights, I think, last week, which was kind of a phenomenal for something that was only going to fly once. Amazing. So Breeze would fly at altitudes between 50 and 60 kilometers, and it would ride these zonal winds. And um, this, this is, um, you know, unlike in, Ingenuity, uh, this is a concept where um, this craft would cover some significant territory and uh, could even circumnavigate Venus every four to six days. And, of course, it would be loaded with sensors and cameras and all kinds of uh, detection devices to uh, collect data and all. But it's important also to realize that this isn't a done deal. Uh, NASA has something called the Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. And this proposal is just one of 17 proposals under that program. And what's happened here is, because this idea for, for Venus has been around for a little while, but what's happened here is that NASA has uh, agreed to go ahead with some funding for this concept to further develop the idea. So whether this actually ever happens or not, or whether other programs uh, that uh, are kind of equally as, as interesting receive ultimate uh, uh, go-aheads and subsequent funding, I mean, all that remains to be seen. So right now, again, where we are is a little bit more money, for the Breeze program to uh, try to uh, kind of develop the concept a little better so that NASA can decide if it's going to be a go. You got to be able to dream, though. Oh, yeah. This is, this, I, I think this is kind of cool. And especially after the success of Ginny, you know that somebody somewhere wants to do this and, and, and will be, figure out a way of doing it. Space is cool. Space is cool. Now, we have a video. It's a pretty short video, and it's uh, about this uh, Breeze airship concept. As I said, it's very short, and it's uh, just sort of very conceptual at this point uh, because it hasn't really received a, a whole lot of development. But we'll have that video in the show notes for, for this episode as well. So let's talk about supplying offshore wind farms. This was from MaritimeExecutive.com. Project seeks to build drones to supply offshore wind farms. Drones would be customized to deliver supplies and other items to offshore wind farms in the Asia-Pacific region. 
I didn't realize that these offshore wind farms were that far offshore that you needed to resupply them with UASs. I think resupplying uh, these um, uh, wind farms, maybe it's sort of a similar logistics uh, issue to uh, offshore oil wells. You, know, you can fly helicopters out there or you can send a boat out there um, for supplies or for maintenance, uh, you know, whatever uh, needs to be done. Um, but that's, that's an expensive proposition. So here we see two, uh, two Singapore-based companies are collaborating. They've signed an MOU to co-develop these drones. And the, the two companies are Marco Polo Marine Limited, which is a regional integrated marine logistics company, and F-Drones, who is a developer of large autonomous delivery drones. I think we've talked about F-Drones in the past. Basically, they, they, they've co-developed delivery drones, are expected to reduce cost 90% and be four times faster and reduce their carbon footprint. The drones will be based on the current F-drone programs of heavy lift drones that can carry up to 100 kilograms um, over 100 kilometers. So they're, they're fairly substantial UASs. So I guess basically this is to supply, resupply parts. I don't know if you're going to be supplying blades that way, but uh, I'm sure that there are things that you need to take out to them after they're inspected or just even the inspections would be much more easily done by UAS than um, having an actual boat go out there or a helicopter to look at these things. Currently, F-Drones has uh, basically three models. One is uh, a multi-rotor. They call it the hypercopter, and it has a load capacity of 15 kilograms and a um, flight range of uh, about 15 kilometers. There's the Hyper Launch, which is a, a, a bit of a different design and uh, longer range. I think this uh, converts to, to fixed wing and it has a, a lower payload capacity, just five kilograms, but it can go over 50 kilometers. And uh, those two are available now. Coming up after 2023, they say, is this 100-kilogram over 100-kilometer drone. They call it the hyper-launch heavy. So it's a, it's a range. Uh, some of these exist, and the, the big one is, is still uh, to come. More to come on that. So, Max, you found a video of the week, huh? Did I find this? I thought you found this. <laughs> well, somebody, put the, somebody put it in the show notes. The PGA Tour is using drones to follow golf shots like this one from Roy Matt. Rory McIlroy, and it's so cool. I used to like watching. My father watched golf every weekend. And my favorite part of watching golf was watching them fly the golf course with a helicopter. This takes it one step further, and watching the ball fly from a quadcopter is just kind of phenomenal. Because the quadcopter is following the ball. It's not just a you know, a static uh, position viewing the trajectory of the, of the ball. So in this case, in the videos uh, that are in this USA Today story, uh, Rory McIlroy is, uh, you know, hitting the ball. It's not during a competition. There's no crowds there. There's no other golfers, uh, at least for, you know, for this demonstration. But he hits the ball, and the ball takes off, obviously, 
and the and the drone takes off after the ball as well. So you get a really unique perspective that's kind of kind of thrilling and really good flying. Part of this is one of those that's sort of like the piloting is also really impressive to be able to track the ball and then yeah, you have to watch the video, but the piloting involved in it was also completely awesome. So a number of sports I think have been using drones to improve the you know the the remote spectator um, appeal. Uh, golf has certainly been one. I've seen many uh, golf tournaments where some shots you know you you watch the shot and th- those of you who listen to this podcast would find the same thing that you can watch the shot and say that's done with a drone. That's clearly done with a drone because there's you know there's no other way that could have been done. But other sports are doing doing this as well. Motorsports has been. Uh, using using drones to provide video coverage and uh, some some really spectacular angles and and following the cars. There is uh, a an annual off road race, King of the Hammers, that uh, just occurred a few weeks or about a month ago, uh, and this is basically desert racing and hill climbing over uh, boulders. But they have drones that follow the cars, and it's. You know, there's no other way to get a spectating experience like that. In their case, I think they uh, charge a premium for that coverage. So you can stream the race, uh, but if you want the, uh, you know, the drone's eye view of the vehicles as they navigate through the boulders and scream down the desert, uh, I think there's a an extra charge for that. It's a premium service. But nevertheless, uh, I think sports is really starting to embrace using drones to uh, really heighten the experience for spectators. There was a lot of Olympic sports, you know, the half pipes and stuff this year, you know, and the Olympics were one of the first ones to sort of incorporate it in. And now it seems to um, be accelerating. Okay. I guess Max, we got it. We did get some listener mail um, from Michael hobby drones at war. How do they help Ukraine? In a February Facebook post, Ukraine's Ministry of Defense says it was looking for drones and for pilots. Do you own a drone? Give it to experienced pilots to use. You know anyone know how to drive a drone? Join the Joint Patrol with units up units 112 separate brigade in the city of Kiev. So basically they're using these drones to provide kamikaze attacks kind of off the shelf with explosives to attack the um, incoming Russians. And they're also using them uh, to uh, as observational platforms, right? So uh, if there's something going on on the other side of a, of a large building or, or they don't know if anything's going on on the other side of a large building, they, they, they can use them to uh, fly BV loss and, and go take a look. Uh, worst case is it gets swatted down somehow by... Uh, uh, the other side. So in warfare, uh, these are obviously very uh, useful devices. And it's kind of interesting that the uh, Ukraine Ministry of Defense is is making this appeal to citizens for uh, off-the-shelf drones. And basically, they're interested in uh, using the, your drones if, you know, you, uh, uh, if you hand it over. And if you're skilled in piloting, then maybe They'd like you to, uh, you know, join forces with them and and provide that service. So interesting, very interesting. So Max, I guess that'll wrap it up for a while. What do you think? 
for this episode. Thanks for listening to the UAV Digest. This has been episode 399. You can uh, find the show notes at the uavdigest.com and you'll find the uh, Links to all the news stories, links to the Joint Counter Small Unmanned Aircraft Office, of course, the video of the week, some other uh, things that we mentioned. So uh, check it out at the UAVdigest.com. And of course, you can find Max and I on social media, on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, and of course, we'd love you to join our Slack listener team. And you do that by sending us an email to feedback at the UAVdigest.com. Likewise, if you want us to discuss a topic or you want us to see something that we might not be on our radar, send an email to us at feedback at the UAVdigest. And we'll, we'll look into it and hopefully talk about it on the next show. So with that, I'm going to say this is David in Delaware. And Max in Connecticut for now. For now. Thanks for listening. You know, I'm not a nerd, as much of a nerd as you, so I didn't know how to pronounce Thor's hammer, the name for Thor's Molinar. hammer. Molinar. Yeah, Molinar. So I figured uh, Thor came from, that's um, Norwegian lore, right? It, yes, Scandinavian. Scandinavian. So I figured, who better to uh, teach me how to pronounce it than a Scandinavian? We are looking at how to pronounce nothing less than the hammer of Thor himself. How do you go about pronouncing the name of this hammer? Yes, his hammer. You know, it's a very special hammer. It does have a name. And what's his name? Simply Mjolnir. Mjolnir. Mjolnir, the hammer of Thor. Mjolnir. <laughs> so there you have it. <laughs> Who was that? A native speaker. Do, do I know? Do I know who that is? No, you don't. Oh, okay. Okay.